You're listening to the Horses, Hats, and Bourbon podcast with Claudia Coffey. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Steve Coombs. He's a food and spirits journalist, author, and educator. He has a background, really interesting background. He started off as a chef, and he he realized at a very young age that he had a fairly sophisticated and complex palate when it comes to spirits and food pairings. He also happens to be the director of programming for the upcoming Kentucky Bourbon Festival. So he gets us all caught up, not only on his background and the books that he's writing, but also what attendees can expect at this year's festival. Steve, I'm just so fascinated just in a sense of learning more about your background, right? I'm always um, intrigued by people that come from chef background and that have the capabilities and the knowledge to write and discuss in an intelligent fashion spirits and pairing. I mean, I think people look at that and they go, wow, that would be a great job. It's really hard. It really is. And I admire that with what you're doing. I guess my first question is how, how did you find your way to, to where you are today? The, I guess the shortest way is when I was 15, my parents said to my older brother and, and me, they said, if y'all want to keep going to St. X, you're going to have to pay for it. You'll have to get better jobs than, whoa than uh you know delivering papers and back then it was only 1200 bucks a year and so i started waiting tables not waiting tables busing tables rather at casa grisanti which precedes you coming to louisville i would imagine by many years Um, but that was one of the restaurants that really created the restaurant boom that we've been enjoying for the past 30 years but it was fine dining and uh, though my mom was a really good cook, that was really good food. And I started getting to taste, uh, you know, fish like it should be made and steaks cooked properly. And, you know, asparagus, it didn't come out of a can. And I kind of realized I did have a little bit of a, uh, and not, not a little bit, I really enjoyed it and was excited about it. Um, and it just kind of became my thing. I was already, you know, this is something long gone, so statute of limitations are over, but I was... Uh, told to go to one of our other restaurants one evening to help with a wine tasting class. And I was only 17. They wanted some flunky to polish glasses. And I, uh, they, for every glass I was polishing, there was always one there that I was tasting that was, you know, had the wine in it that the, the wealthy people were drinking for the class. And I loved it. And that, that my palate was conditioned for that. I didn't really even understand that until, you know, probably the past 10 years that I was just wired for it. But I always wanted to write, always wanted to be a journalist, uh, but I was a terrible typist. And when I knew that, I, that nobody would hire me because all I had ever learned on was a manual typewriter, I decided to become a chef and moved from busboy to cook and took a huge pay cut, if you can believe it. But uh, that's where you know I kind of started my journey into really understanding food and what makes it work and how to prepare it. And at the same time, I was reading all these really cool restaurant trade magazines and thinking, man, I would love to write for them someday. And eventually, on the way out of my life, a very smart girlfriend said, you know you, about word processing, don't you? And I said, no. <laughs> she <laughs> said, you don't have to be a great typist to do it. So uh, that was the second best thing she ever did for me, other than telling me to get lost. And um, I bought a laptop, 11 and a half pound laptop, if you and remember Steve, those. now it'll auto-correct your words and everything. Yeah, yeah, it does all that stuff. And I was like, wow, maybe I can put the two together and start writing about food. And I've done that for the past 30 years. I really focus more on the trade side. I'm much, I'm much more pre- prefer to write about makers than what they make. 
Mm. Um, even though food is cool and food is what gets the headlines. I love the chefs and the bartenders and, and now um, spirits makers. So I've written about the bourbon industry for about seven years, eight years, maybe. And uh, it's like a whole new thing for me. And it's the right time to be doing it in Kentucky, right? Where all the people say, are. I feel like you've had a front row seat to really key several years where it, it's, we all knew it was going to be a boom. And then it just, it exploded in such a way. And what would, has been your kind of take is you just kind of have watched things unfold and I guess add the pandemic to it. And we're dealing with something that I, I don't know if anybody really imagined how big this would be. Well, but the funniest part for me was turning around to the friends that tried to get me to drink bourbon for all those years and just say, oh my gosh, it's now good. And, and realizing very quickly as a journalist, how much I had to learn. And that was just compared to them, the amateurs who really dove deep. Some of, some of my friends were really in that early run of people who can probably be credited with, you know, doing a lot, a lot of work to start the boom, you know, by discussing it, you know, in, uh, online forums, not long before social media was ever around and really coveting the right whiskeys and discovering the right whiskeys that those are the collections that are more interesting than half the stuff that's out there now. Um, so it was catching up for me. I don't know about you, but it was fun to catch up because the industry as a whole just doesn't seem to have a big ego. I mean, these people will sit with you. I saw your recent podcast with uh, Fred No, No, it was an interview for Great Day Live. And he's like, Come on by anytime, Claudia. And he means and it. And he means it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's so many of those that even if you have to wiggle a bit to get onto their schedule, they will talk to you and teach you and answer questions endlessly, which is just, it's, un, it's unreal for one of the hottest things going on in this state right now, in the country, maybe, that you can still get that kind of access. And I think the media has treated them well and they like that. And we all have a good time. But, um, uh, to your question about the the growth, you know, you talk to the leaders in the industry like Max Shapiro at Heaven Hill, and he'll just say, we're just starting. Wow. <laughs> we're just starting. He said, if you had asked me that 30 years ago, I would have said, no way. But he said, we're just at the, we're really at the beginning because they're looking at overseas opportunities while knowing that they haven't conquered Kentucky yet in terms of bourbon sales, much less the United States. So I don't know how much you travel, but I see way too many bars covered with clear spirits bottles. Exactly. And it's, it's, um, no, everywhere you go, you're inundated with it, of course. And the whole pairings thing, suddenly that just hit some, some cool road, right? That just became, of course, I think we've always associated wines with foods, craft beers with foods, the whole bourbon thing. Talk to me about that and, and where you kind of go with explaining that. I know you're going to be doing a couple of the um, of the events at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. And I think just folks that like bourbon and love the industry, they're really getting into it and they're expecting like higher levels of workshops and seminars, like their palate for it and their desire to learn more has, that's what Fred and I talked about. It's like, he's blown away by the caliber of people want to learn more. And so they have to step up their game to make sure that they're offering the best quality, right? And you have to do the same with the workshops that are out there. Exactly. Uh, I kind of stumbled across uh, Country Ham, you know, uh, cut like prosciutto, not cooked, um, paper thin and paired it up really, truly, honestly, absentmindedly with, uh, with bourbon. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, man, huh. that's really good. 
And six months afterward, I was starting to do pairings with, you know, formal pairings in classes. In fact, got to open Fred Nose eyes of all people. He seems to be our subject today <laughs> as to how good those go together. Um, I think whiskey is outstanding in terms of pairing with food. And, and one night I was at a restaurant in South Carolina in Hilton Head, actually. And the chef was um, a, a publicist in our a publicist in our group. The chef was her client. And so there were no menus, just food just came out, food came out. And I had two ounces of stag junior bourbon that I was just nursing throughout the meal. Uh, and it paired with everything that came to the table. It made it better. It made, and the foods made the whiskey better. It was like, he wasn't even trying or I wasn't even trying to pair it and it still worked well. And I think so few people don't understand that they, they put whiskey in a silo either because of its proof or its powerful flavors and don't understand that it can go laterally or they're intimidated in a tasting when people say, I taste chocolate, I taste cotton candy, all this like, well, how are you getting all this stuff? Yeah. Well, my food background ties really well into that whiskey background. Cause that's how I think when I taste things, I don't, I don't necessarily pick out chemicals like some of these brilliant distillers do. You know, they see it differently. Um, but I think, you know, to, to go back to what you're saying about wine, wine is much more relatable just because of grape juice, just because of sweeter drinks, just because of its approachability. And, and historically, that's what it was. It was. It was a great pairing liquid for all the right reasons. The same thing for beer. And I don't think people intuitively look at whiskey and go, hmm, wonder if I want to have a glass of that with my steak or, or well, sure, surely will overpower the fish. Well, surely it might not. You know, I think that's try it. The go to is that it will overpower rather than complement or bring out the flavors in what you're eating. Right. Absolutely. And, and part of that is knowing how to taste it. And in those settings, it's sipping. You, you don't you don't get a big mouthful of uh, whiskey like you do beer or wine when you're trying to pair you know, whiskey, whiskey, um, oh, well, here's what wine and beer do not do. They don't cleanse the palate in the sense that whiskey does. Whiskey is high proof alcohol that will scrub right through the fat and cleanse the palate. And all of a sudden add a, you know, a bunch of illuminating flavors to whatever you're tasting. And that, that's really exciting to me. And a lot of aromas that you never expected. I've, I've yet to have a bad pairing, mm -hmm. even by accident. Um, and this kind of leads me into my, my next question, because I'm so excited about the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. And I feel like the direction that it's gone in to kind of elevate what they offer, because I feel like people around the world want more, right? They want to learn more. They want to meet more people. They want to try more things. You are the director of programming. What, what does that mean? And, and how do you see this festival kind of shaking out with the, the, just the sheer number of, of programming and the workshops that they have? Well, director of programming means the guy that has come up with the ideas for the seminars and the panel discussions and the guy who has to wrangle all that talent onto a schedule. Good luck. And, uh, <laughs> and here we are. What was it? Today is the seventh. So <laughs> like two, 10 days from when that starts. And we're still making you know adjustments to that. Um, when I went to the Bourbon Festival, probably for the First time for me was 2014 or 2015. I looked at it and saw a fun event, you know, a very friendly event, but something that just was not a festival that really represented what it was called. It, it was more of a, a fall festival. I don't want to say a town fair. Um, what would be a good way to describe it? Because I want to say something positive because there was a lot of people there enjoying it. But 
I'd been to a lot of wine, spirits, beer, food, et cetera, events that were thematically in line with the name of the event. You wouldn't go to the, you would not go to, for instance, the Charleston Wine and Food Festival and not, and not see a lot of wine and a lot of food. And that's kind of where the Bourbon Festival was. There was a lot of fun events, but not all of them really said, this is the coolest liquid ever to come from Kentucky. Let's celebrate it and let's taste it and let's match it with food and let's talk about how it's made and let's talk to the people who make it. And when Randy Prossi, the, the president and COO of the festival, and I started talking about it, I said, we have a huge opportunity, I think, you know, because they, they, the board had said, we want to overhaul this. I said, I think we have a huge opportunity to make it match all those ideals of what it could and should be. And the unofficial mantra of ours is the Kentucky Bourbon Festival is about the whiskey and the people who drink it. Mm. That's it. If it doesn't fit that, then we're not going to entertain it for now. Who knows what's going to happen down the road? But that was really easy. That just made it simple for me to make a list of all these subjects that I hadn't seen discussed in other areas and throw it out there for people to jump on. And man, they jumped on it fast. I think the whole thing sold out in three weeks last spring. Well, where else can you go and try the best bourbons in the world, meet the people that make them, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big thing to almost get your head around when you think of all the sheer number of master distillers, you know, the families, the heritage that's there in one location. It's huge. Yeah. And and what you just kind of made a point with that, knowing it, these guys and gals in the industry love to hang with each other. The makers, they love to, to go see other distillers and other technicians and other consultants and you name it. All these people are a real fraternity um, who respect each other's work and want to taste each other's whiskey, frankly. Right. And Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Russell from Wild Turkey said that the very first bourbon festival uh was so underattended that mostly the master sales were walking around drinking each other's whiskey and talking to each other. And he said that the, one of the biggest incentives for having number two was that they got to see each other yeah. because they're usually working and not able to go out and hang around each other. So that, you know, just comes back to the whole idea of us celebrating the whiskey and the people who make it to give them, give them the pat on the back and the adulation for what they do uh, that, we left so much in those bottles. Right. Of the events that are planned um, that you've been working on, what are you most excited about seeing people experience or hearing feedback from or, or that you are even looking forward to being a part of yourself? Man, that's a great question. It's not one easy to answer. I, I have said so many times, man, I want to attend the festival. Right. <laughs> you know? I want to just hang out. <laughs> I just want to hang out. This is some great stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, one of the problems in the scheduling, I'll admit is I had overscheduled myself in terms of moderators and here we are, you know, thank you, Claudia, for bailing me out. What did Um, you pick me on? Um, bourbon and cornbread pairings. (laughs) That is going to be so cool. cool. I said that to somebody, they're like, wait a minute. I never thought of a bourbon and a cornbread pairing. And it is Elijah Craig. No. No. So it's even cooler than that. Okay. So the ladies who own Jep the Creed Distillery in uh, near Shelbyville, yep. uh, that's Joyce and Autumn Nethery, they literally, and don't get nearly enough attention or, or pats on the back for this, they are a truly grain-to-glass distillery. Joyce um, Nethery, the mother, 
plants the corn, grows the corn, harvests the corn, and distills it. And once it gets into the, into the distillery, Autumn's involved as well as a distiller. So they really, really make it. They have experimented with multiple varieties of corn to use in their whiskeys. And they've also taken the spent grain and made cornbread from it. So they found that was a really cool alignment to taste the whiskey that was made with a certain, like the bloody butchered corn, taste the whiskey, and then taste the cornbread made from it. Mm. So they're going to do it with four different varieties of corn, four different whiskeys, and you know it's four different cornbreads. So they're really drilling down idea. deep into the yeah. effect of flavor and grain going in multiple directions. And I, I just think that's so cool and creative. And, and, and I'm not going to get to go. Wow. I, I'll enjoy it for you. <laughs> with Joyce and Autumn, I mean, I think they're a great example. And I've interviewed a number of women in the industry on this podcast that Am I wrong in thinking, have, have women just jumped up within this industry or is there just an opportunity for them to grow and succeed and the industry embraces them so much? I think so. I feel, I I'm think it's finding great. more and more women within it that it, and it's appealing to large numbers of women that want to plan trips to distilleries. I think so too. Um, I, I think that there's no, it's not some secret any longer that women have greater sensory capabilities than males. Um, and you see women in key positions in the, in the distilling business because of that nose and that palate, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, I think Joyce, especially, I just, there's a video on Facebook somewhere of her driving the tractor as it's planting the corn. I'm like, man, but she has a, uh, a chemical engineering degree and she used to distill paint chemicals for um, Rome Haas in West Louisville. So it was just a matter of switching to liquor distilling for her. So she, she brought the brains in. Yeah. Um, who else? Like, like Jane Bowie at Maker's Mark, who has no formal training whatsoever, uh, it has one of the best palates in the business and, and one of the highest abilities to blend. Denny Potter, the master distiller there, says she's as good a, a blender as anybody that I've ever seen in the industry. No training whatsoever. So, I, you know, maybe just with, with all the changes in society, it's just opened the door and women have gone, hey, it's open. Let's run in there. Run in there and take it over. It's a distillery job. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you bring up a good point. You know, I didn't think about that, but women do have just different sensories, different palates, just sensitivity to things that men would not. They do. I mean, they, uh, the science has shown that the wiring is there, but, yeah. but as any, any great one will tell you, like, you know, Andrea Wilson at Mictors will say, you still got to have the, you still have to develop it and you still have to know what you're tasting and to be able to communicate that to your peers for whatever reason. Is this whiskey bad? Good. Does it taste like this? Does it hit the target? You know, it's one thing to be hypersensitive to flavors. It's another thing to be able to um, categorize it and make it meaningful to data, you know, make it equal data on some level. It says we're doing the right things or we're off course here. You summarize that so well. This is why you ghostwrite and write for other people. Right? I like that you stuff. You got in my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One specific place where you got in my head and um, I'd love to say you stole my idea. This is such a great idea. Uh, the topic of your book, The Modern Bourbonism. 
because I'm driving through like Gethsemane and New Haven and, and I'm lecturing my mom right on this trip. Yeah. And I'm it like, mom, I got a copy of it handy somewhere. I'm like, mom, this is it. I'm like, you know, everybody wants to say Louisville's growing, Lexington's growing, you know, these major cities. There we go. Rebirth of bourbon. Look better already, right? But the topic is what I'm like when you maybe it's just being the background of journalism. When you go to these different smaller cities and you see their growth right around a distillery and around a tourism destination. And I'm, I'm telling my mom, I'm like, mom, this is where it's at. I'm like, I just see this growth happening, whether they're ready for it or not, in these smaller little towns. And, and your book kind of encapsulates what has happened in Bardstown, right? That's right. a great example. If you're the bourbon capital, are you ready to be the bourbon capital? But I see that, honestly, Steve, like in a lot of these little cities, handling the traffic and the tourism. I think it's great for them. Um, but I see those little pockets of, of towns becoming the new little little epicenters of Kentucky. Am I wrong? You're exactly right. And I'm trying to think who told me uh, in one of the interviews for the book is probably uh, Chad McCoy, the Nelson County representative. And he said, what's changed you know, in Frankfurt is that there are still so many communities out there that are dry or the full county is dry. They don't serve alcohol, but they understand the impact of bourbon tourism. And so they're amenable. They are now amenable to letting laws be changed to see it grow and to see it benefit communities that they know that even though they may not choose to serve alcohol in their communities, that it's still beneficial to have laws that benefit this whole state at large and communities that do serve alcohol. And so that, 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 that's, that's amazing how quickly some of these laws have changed or laws have been created to allow that change in the past 10 years. Because 12 years ago, there was a demonstration by multiple distilleries standing on the steps of the Capitol pouring out bourbon bottles because of a new tax. So things have, things have gone in, in, in their favor. And you're right. All that has to happen. Those dominoes have to be put up and knocked over to make those changes in those little towns. But it's it, it's here to stay. Bourbon tourism is a powerful force. And I think what I came away from writing the book with is that the distilleries are looking around going, hmm, I don't know if these little towns are ready. So we're going to build hotels and we're going to build experiences and we're going to we're going to make it happen, regardless of whether the towns are able or or desire to change in that direction. So look for some boutique hotels happening on these distilleries properties. Look at look at what Heaven Hill just did with their visitors' experience. Right. Look what Maker's Mark has done. It's it's amazing, and and that they they feel empowered to do that now with these law changes. And and they're you know it's busy at distilleries. They've got the cash to do it. And I mean, look at I was in Harlan, Kentucky, uh, in the middle of the summer, and and there's a place that was a long holdout. It was dry up until what a year ago it was and, that right wow. and uh gil holland from our nulu area here in louisville went right. there and said no i think we're going to do a craft distill we're going to do a craft brewery right and so once the craft brewery and and they flipped it to a wet county then suddenly there is movement on hotels and boutique shopping experiences and, and just suddenly things of uh, you know you'd think Harlan, East Kentucky is pretty conservative, right? That, that's not going to go the other way. But I think they're with a younger generation, they realized if we don't, 
what is our, what's plan B? Right. I mean, these things provide jobs. They provide tax revenue. I mean, liquor is not some evil any, any more that people see. Abuse of it is, obviously. But I mean, you look at, I think in the, the book that I wrote that Bartstown schools alone get $3.2 million every year, pretty much for the amount of whiskey that's just resting in warehouses, that they get a tax on those barrels. $3.2 million for a tiny little school system. That's great. I mean, there's any, any way you look at it, hold it up like a prism and you're going to find positive things that this has done for the state. And, and it's only going to get better. Yeah. So after you rest from the bourbon festival, what, what is next for you? Are you going to take a little break? Are you writing? What can you tell us that you're working on or where can we follow you? Oh my gosh. It's nuts <laughs> right now. You need a break well, after that, right? Yeah, we we uh, originally were going to have vacation uh, the very first week of October, but red tide is a problem right now in uh, on the west coast of Florida. So we're going to wait till the end. I think the last week in October to go to St. George Island in Florida. I've never been before, so there's no red tide there. So yes, there will be a rest. But um, yeah, I was uh, uh, kind of chuckling about it yesterday. It was having to work on Labor Day just because my regular job of just being a freelance writer is so busy right now. And and then working on all the details of the festival. Like today, we're, we're doing all the fun stuff. We're at the bottom of the funnel you know, where you're mailing out credentials to people and you're just making sure every box is ticked and ticked. And, um, you know, that we're ready to go, but we're, we're excited. We can see, you know, we can see it coming together and it, and it happening and and we're excited. I'm sure we'll, we'll need a break. Uh, and I keep telling Randy and the team's like, man, we need to have our own private party once that's done and celebrate, invite our volunteers and some close friends and things like that. <laughs> because it's, it's lots of big changes this year and it's a new direction and you want it to be warmly received and, and celebrate the success of it. Yeah. I mean, we've got many, many sponsors signed on for three years, so we don't want to make them angry in year one. <laughs> which I don't think it's going to happen. I, I think we've got a great program set up. I think people who have been in the past and who were lucky enough to get tickets this year coming in, will see the changes and be really excited about it. We just want it to be an elevated experience that again, points to the people who make the whiskey and lets them tell their story. It'll be fun. We're going to, you know, even the free part of um, the education program, we try to, the subjects talked about, we, we really want people to get a good laugh and we want them to get, get some real insight into what goes on in the business and people attached to the business. We're also going to have, we're going to talk about the 25th anniversary of the Heaven Hill fire, which is the story I was writing yesterday for Bourbon Plus magazine. That, that I think is one of the reasons why I walked away a little bit grumpy because it, it's tense watching all that, <laughs> just editing a piece about th these Warehouses burning down and seeing that distillery burn down and all the frantic action that was uh, behind that. And we're going to have two distillery workers who were there at the time talk about it. Oh, wow. We're gonna, you know, it, it's, it, but Bill Samuels is going to be on the stage and he's always entertaining. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the guy that gave Maker's Markets real boost. Um, he says he's retired, but he's not very retired from what I understand. But uh, he's still He'll a never storyteller. <laughs> I think he'll yeah, always, such a great story be, always be engaged. Certainly. Yeah. So it's fun. But I mean, it's like a, a, if people if people haven't been to. Well, nobody's been to this version of it, but imagine it a whole lot like a beer festival in which you're among your peers and you're tasting liquids that you love. Mm -hmm. It's just a happy place. 
<laughs> it's going to be happy. It's going to be fun. You're going to make a lot of new friends and you're going to meet a lot of the, the stars that we, whose work we love so much. Where can people go to stay connected to you, learn more about where you write, connect with you as a speaker? Uh, stevecoombs.com, S-T-E-V-E-C-O-O-M, as in Mark, as in Edward, S.com. And uh, my Facebook page uh, that, I, you know, I've got, I've got to do a much better job about social media marketing. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a geezer at 57. So I'm still, still slow on the uptake for oh, that. You're doing, you're doing great. I mean, you really are. And thank you for, for getting me involved in the festival too this year. I'm excited about it. Oh, you're, you're a sucker, Claudia. We're going to wear you out. Right, eventually. I know. <laughs> we're we're going to show you the program for next year and say, pick some of these, do them. Please. I'll be blocking your number before the end of the week. <laughs> Oh, Steve, thank you so much. A very special thank you to Steve for uh, taking the time to speak to me on the podcast. I just really enjoyed our conversation. If you want to learn more about him, check out his book, or maybe book him for an upcoming speaking event, I have you linked up over in my show notes. Have a great week, everybody. Cheers. (laughs) 